Welcome to the Inner Craft Podcast. This podcast is about meditation and awakening from the lenses of diverse wisdom traditions. Here, we host teachers and practitioners who have devoted their lives to rigorous and extensive training. Our goal is to provide you with nuggets of wisdom that may help deepen your practice and bring more of it into daily life. My name is Andres Valdivieso. I am co-founder of InnerCraft, an online platform for in-depth and personalized meditation training, and I'll be your host in this episode. In this episode, I'm joined by spiritual teacher Richard Lang. Richard was a student of Douglas Hardin, author of On Having No Head, and the founder of the contemplation method called The Headless Way. As Richard describes it, the headless way is a modern way of seeing our true nature, the limitless space we are looking out of. Richard has been practicing and sharing the headless way for over 50 years now, and has also written several books about it. His mission is to make seeing our true nature as widely available as possible. In this interview, Richard talks about his journey prior to encountering the headless way, how his desire for awakening evolved over time, what the headless way is and how it works, how we can incorporate frequent moments of seeing our true nature in the middle of daily life, the relationship between love, compassion and the headless way and more. He also conducts an experiment for the audience in which he attempts to make us realize what our first person experience is actually like. Now, without further ado, Richard Lang. Hello, Richard. Welcome to the InnerCraft Podcast. Hello, Andres. Thank you for inviting me. A pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for being here. I've already shared a little bit of your background with the audience, but as a way to start the conversation, we would like to hear a little bit about your journey prior to finding the headless way. I know that you had some interest in spirituality already or the self-exploration journey would love to expand a little bit on that yes uh, i think uh, it all began when i was about 11 years old and i was at boarding school in yorkshire in the north of england and i listened to a sermon given by the headmaster and he told a story that was from the Venerable Bede, who was a historian and a kind of saint, really, in the north of England in about the 10th century or the 9th century, something like that. And the story was of a king in his big hall around a fire with all his lords and ladies and all of that, something like that. And it was a winter's night. So in through the window flew a bird, a sparrow, flew around the big hall, I think, in the light, and then flew out another window into the dark of the winter's night. And it really caught my imagination. And what I think the Venerable Bede was bringing everyone's attention to was the, the briefness of life, that uh, it's about as long as a sparrow flying in the light. But that's not what attracted me. My question was, where did that sparrow come from? <laughs> and where did it go? You know, the dark winter's night uh, somehow uh, 
brought into my imagination this sense of the great mystery of where we come from. Uh, it was a powerful image for me. I think that's inspired me ever since, really. So thank you, Venerable Bede from the ninth century or whenever it was in the north of England. And uh, I got involved with Christianity. The headmaster was a Christian. He was doing a Christian sermon. But by the time I was about, and I was interested in the mystical side of it. Uh, and I wanted to experience God, you know, all of that. Uh, but I didn't get that from Christianity. So when I was about 15, I started reading other things. This is in the late 1960s. I read about Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam. And uh, then when I was 17, I went on a Buddhist society summer school in near London and uh, went with my brother and I was just really interested in, I wanted to get enlightened, you know. I wanted to find out what my true self was and all of that. Uh, and uh, I was very shy and confident, it was both. And I got quite confused at this meeting of earnest Buddhists, uh, you know, Zen or Tibetan or Theravadan, I had a clue. And then one day someone said, uh, there's a workshop with Douglas Harding, why don't you go to it? And I'd never heard of him, so I, I dutifully went along. And Douglas did the experiments. He posed the question that you are not what you look like. And then he said, now we're going to test that, in essence, is what he said. This is 1970s. And uh, he, got, he got us to look at the place we're looking out of, and uh, indeed uh, point. Well, I'm not sure if we did the pointing experiment already at that time, but in essence that was it. Look out and uh, you see the world. Look back to where others see your face and what do you see? And I looked and I thought, well, there's nothing here. And that was like looking out that window on that dark winter's night into the mystery. Looking back to myself, who would have guessed that that mystery where the birth came from was nearer to me than my breathing. <laughs> so what happened then was uh, that uh, we did other experiments and uh, I was there a few days, so I suppose I got to chat to Douglas a bit. He was about 60 then. And he said, if anyone is interested, really interested, come and visit me at my home. So a few months late, months later, I went with my brother and my mother who uh, was wondering what we got involved with, down to Douglas's house in Suffolk and uh, stayed the weekend. He had two houses. He was an architect and he designed a second house. And in the second house, we, we had workshops. And there must have been a dozen people or more there that weekend, as there was most weekends when he went. And uh, that was an occasion where I could ask all my doubts, raise my doubts and sort out my questions, you know, and, and get a bit more confident on this vision, which had already begun to affect me, you know. And the, a couple of things to say, really, is one that personally, I, I think I realized very soon that this was just an extraordinarily effective way of bringing people's attention to their true nature by looking for your head. Uh, now, uh, when Douglas discovered this back in 1943, he didn't just go around saying to everyone, I don't have a head. He spent 
about 10 years working out how it made sense scientifically, psychologically, philosophically. And I think people have to do that more or less. People say, well, what about my nose? Or I can touch my head. Or what about the mirror? Or what happens when you die? Or how does it affect personal relationships? Well, you have to work all that out in your own way and everyone to their own uh, degree of satisfaction as much as you can. So that's what I did in the following years. I read everything Douglas had written. I got to know him. I did workshops with him. But uh, at the same time, I had this feeling that this was just a very powerful modern way of sharing this ancient truth. So I uh, committed myself as much as you can at that age to not only being aware of it, but to sharing it, to communicating it, which is what I'm doing now. And uh, most people are probably not interested in actually sharing it in this, in that way. I think if you are aware of it, you're sharing it. But the other thing I'll just add in uh, at this moment uh, is a question that often people ask is, well, all right, I can notice I cannot see my head, uh, but uh, and, and I get that that is seeing my true nature, but how do I stay aware of it? And what I did was that I spent time with Douglas and other friends who were also aware of it. And it's a social thing, it's infectious. And uh, being with you for this hour or hour and a half, whatever it is, is hanging out with someone and communicating about our true nature. That keeps it on the front burner for me. And uh, I say to people these days, uh, you know, when you grow up, you uh, learn that you're a person. How do you get that going? You hang out with people who are telling you you're a person and you're, you're going for that, you see. Well, how do you then incorporate, integrate, stabilize awareness of your true nature. Well, you hang out with others who are also aware of it. It's that simple. <laughs> that's the that's the brief story, Andres. That's the brief. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, uh, Richard. Such an interesting journey. I have, I guess, a couple of questions about all of what you shared. Uh, at the beginning, you shared that you had a desire for awakening when you were exploring in your earlier journey, all of these traditions. So I wonder how this desire have evolved. Uh, if you, yeah, well, I, I leave it like that uh, to start with. Well, I think that uh, that story that my headmaster told me uh, sparked that interest, but I think that it was uh, a kind of familiar uh, interest already. And I think it, it is really, when you get down to it, you can't explain it. And I think uh, perhaps you can seem to explain it by saying, well, it's, the, it's who you really are. It's the one wanting to know itself. And that comes out in, in, in your life, or you know, it might not, but it's very mysterious why it should come out in my life and not in someone else's. And I can't explain that or understand that. But I think that when you wake up to who you really are, this wide open, headless space that contains everything, and I look at you, Andres, and it's face there to no face here. I am you, I'm space for you, I'm space for the world. 
my voice is coming out of nowhere. So waking up to what I am from my point of view. I understand for you I'm Richard and uh, on the screen I'm Richard. That's what I look like. But what I am for me is this mystery, this where the bird came from. And I think that that mystery, and I speak for it really, says, oh my God, I am. How did I do that? Uh, I, I, you know, I'd like to uh, think about that a bit. <laughs> and I think that uh, it is such a deep, natural feeling for the one to have, to, to be curious about itself. It doesn't just go, oh, I'm the one, oh God, yeah, I know that. It goes, I'm the one, how on earth did I come to be? And what on earth is this world that is arising within me? That's pretty amazing. <laughs> so I can't explain it, uh, but I think that, uh, first of all, that headmaster inspired me. So I got inspiration from him and the Venerable Bede. And secondly, Douglas Harding inspired me. And I got to know him. And he had thought very deeply and lived this reality. And so I uh, kind of uh, connected with that through him. He was also very egalitarian. He's, he was not claiming to have something that others didn't have. He said, you, everyone has access to this. Just look your head. I mean, how accessible is that? And so I made many, many friends through Douglas and then through the friends I made through him. So that now I am part of a, a very big community of people who are aware of their true nature. And that is inspiring and keeps it on the front burner and it is ever renewing. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, and just to understand better, let's say, uh, uh, understanding your true nature from the lenses of the headless way, which I guess is from any lenses, really, right? There's only, I mean, there's only one true nature anyways. Once you understand it, is there a journey towards understanding it better and deepening it? Or once you get it, you got it and there's nothing else to do? Well, it's both, you see. It's a paradox. And when you see your headless true nature, if I can use the headless way jargon, you see, and you notice you're looking out of your single eye, and you notice when you're driving, you're still and the scenery moves through you, or you're lying in bed at night with your eyes closed and you've got no boundaries, the darkness is single and it's all in you, and so on and so forth. You can't get the awareness of the space any differently. It's always the same, because that when you look at the place you're looking out of, it has no face, no name, no nationality, no age. It's, it never changes and it's the same for everyone. And uh, so you can't improve that. But what flows from that is your response and your experience and your interactions with people. And that uh, deepens and deepens in terms of your understanding and appreciation and living from who you really are. So it's a, it's a two-way two thi two thing. In this direction, the inward direction, it never changes and we're all the same and you, there's no hierarchy and you can't get better or worse at it. And, but in the outward direction, we're all different and that's the joy of the one being many, you see. I'll say something else about that. Um, people say, well, how can I do this 24-7, you see? How can I be aware of my true nature 24-7? I say, I have no idea. 
because it's, it's not in time. I, I say, this space I'm looking out of, let's just take the last 20 minutes where I've been talking to you or whatever it is. Now, how much of that time have I been aware of the space? Well, I mean, I, I just can't tell. I can't measure it because it's timeless and it is only now, you see. I mean, if I say, well, I, I was aware when I first started talking with you that I was space for you, I said, well, can you be sure? That, that's a memory, isn't it? You might be fooling yourself. And seeing who you really are is, is not going by memory. It's saying, what am I now? And this is both the disadvantage and the advantage. The disadvantage is that you can't stretch it out. You can't guarantee you will now see it for the rest of your life. I'm sorry, there you go. You know, that's the bad news. The good news is you can only see it now. And I mean right now. And when you look now, you see that you see it perfectly and it's out of time. So that's the good news, because you, you, you've got it now, forever. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I, ca I can't, I guess, quantify and remember when I am aware and when I'm, when I'm not, but I can catch myself not being aware or being too self-aware, self uh, if, if that's a thing. Well, you see, I'll say, what I say to that is that I have no doubt, Andres, that you're looking out of the same space as I am in the sense it has no face, no name, no age. Uh, now that is your response to it. That's your description of what it's like to be you. And I say, who am I to argue with that? I welcome that different expression from the same space, you see. So great to get your response there. Thanks. Because <laughs> it's one space, isn't it? It's one space and two voices, right? Mm-hmm. It is one of the places. Yeah. Would you agree? <laughs> I agree. Ah, okay. That's good, you see. So I'll say one more uh, thing about that, is that in my view, uh, I, I gain great um, freedom from accepting that awareness of your true nature is nonverbal, and you can't get it wrong. I mean, someone says, well, I don't get it. I say, can you see your face now? They say, no. I say, and do you see the world instead of your face? And they go, yes, because how can you deny that? You see, I'm talking about not understanding. I'm talking about perception, see. I said, well, that's it. <laughs> you see, so you can't get that wrong. But, and I say, and even describing it like that is too complicated because that's words. It's a non-verbal experience. There's, uh, there's no dividing line. You're looking at the single eye. You see, and now I'm elaborating on a non-verbal experience. The single eye fades out all the way around into the great space. My voice comes out of silence. So I say that everyone gets it. So, you know, some people say, well, Richard, how many people get it and how many don't? I say, they all get it. <laughs> but not everyone values it. And... Uh, if you don't value it, you're not going to go on with it. But secondly, the great freedom that uh, I mentioned comes from recognizing that everyone gets it and it's nonverbal. So it's not a matter of understanding. Because my understanding is going to be different from yours. And my description of it is going to be different from yours. And if you think that getting it is understanding it and understanding it in a certain way, then you may or may not get it, 
and you won't get it the same as anyone else. So there's a hierarchy and people spend years studying scriptures to try and understand them, you know, never quite, you know, can you be sure you've got it right? And uh, when speaking personally, I accept that everyone's got it, but they understand it or value it differently from me. The pressure is off uh, having to understand it in a certain way or having to convince anyone else because ridiculous, you know. <laughs> the, what opens up is the opportunity to share your perspective of it, which you know is going to be unique to you and different from, you know, my perspective is different from yours. But, you know, vive la différence. Do you think uh, there's a risk in somebody maybe intellectually understanding this and explaining that to you from all of the books and all of well, the great concepts he has and then by, well, anybody validating that view, maybe stagnating his progress to go beyond concepts? Well, I, uh, I'm sure there's danger of me doing that. But personally, I... Uh, don't go that road down that road. Personally, I stay as close as I can to the experience. And when I'm talking with someone, I, I've already mentioned the experience several times, haven't I? I try and keep that in mind because that is the point of contact. And if someone starts going down a, a road of understanding it that uh, I don't get, well, in a way, as long as we're, as long as I'm in touch with my true nature, you know, good luck to them, and I might not want to continue the conversation. But here's a, a rather fun way of of communicating the absolute communicability of your true nature. So uh, I'll put it like this: um, when you read the Buddha and the scriptures, you know. You can't, you can't be sure that you are understanding exactly what the Buddha said, partly because it's two and a half thousand years ago. It wasn't written down for hundreds of years, apparently. You know, so I mean, there's a, a, there's a lot of room for mistakes there. It was in another language, so I mean, it involves translation. You know, it could be even two lots of translation. No. Uh, you might be ha have a headache at the time you read it and, you know, miss a word. So there's endless opportunities for misunderstanding what the Buddha said. So, I mean, to base your life on what you think the Buddha said is, that is a gambler's throw, isn't it? You know, however, there is one thing that the Buddha said that, um, just one thing, the Buddha said that you cannot misunderstand, even though it, it, he said it two and a half thousand years ago and uh, all of that. Do you want to know what it is? Is it related to using your own experience to figure out what the Buddha said? <laughs> well, you can see. I'll, here I go. I'm going to tell you what, what it was that the Buddha said that you can't not get. So here it is. <laughs> you see, you can't you can't get that wrong. <laughs> so that's what this whole podcast interview boils down to. <laughs> All right. 
Nice to talk to you, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just send me the check for that last bit. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Richard. Um, you also mentioned, and I found interesting that some people do get it and some people don't. Uh, within, I mean, uh, the Buddhist context, usually people go through some sort of concentration training until they are, let's say that their mind is unified enough or concentrated enough so they can look deeply into the nature of their reality. Do you think that's necessary? And that may be the reason why some people get it and some people don't just because of the degree, you know, of ability of mind that there, there is for somebody at some time. Well, I've got some experience in meditation. I uh, lived in a meditation center for four years in the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, I was invited to lead retreats. I led 10-day Vipassana retreats for about three years, one after the other. So I did a lot of meditation. It was a great experience, a great experience in running groups. So I've got a lot of experience, but I did find that, whereas I, who were, I was headless, you see, I could just sit and be spaced for whatever came up, I did notice quite a lot of people sat in order to get somewhere. Well, I mean, uh, that, that was rather a difficult thing to do, you know, for obvious reasons. But uh, again, I say that everyone gets it, but not everyone gets the highs or the deep realizations. When you sit quietly and do nothing, that is a very special kind of context and situation quite different from running around doing your job or driving a car or even eating, you know. It, uh, so it's going to produce different states of mind from driving your car. Uh, so it has its value, but it is no more, um, it, it, it isn't, doesn't make your true nature any more accessible when you're sitting quietly with your eyes closed than when you're driving a car or where I'm talking now. Your true nature is equally accessible, whatever you're doing. That's for testing. But I find that true, and, and my friends do. Uh, now, uh, if you do sit quietly, but I mean, if you do other things, you'll get all kinds of astonishing states of mind. And these are healthy, as long as you don't hold on to them. It's very good to be, you know, to experience a so-called expansive state of mind. And, and all of that, but it will go. What comes goes, and it's not your true nature. It comes out of your true nature. So it, it's the obvious thing, really. You know, uh, say yes to what comes, and say say yes to it as it goes. <laughs> but I, I also uh, it, it, there is a kind of idea about you probably don't have this, Andres, but. Uh, that you've got to sort out your mind or purify yourself or something like that in order to really be who you are. I say, no, you'll never do it. Uh, and if you think you've done it, that's the biggest ego trip of all. <laughs> you know. And uh, I think the humble, simple, kind fact is that your true nature is 100% available now. Right now, as I'm talking to you, it is, um, you know, I'm not looking out of half this space. Or, or three quarters of it, and it's not clearer that now that I've mentioned it than it was, you know, that if I don't mention it, it is absolutely perfectly visible for everyone. But 
the content of the space uh, changes. And uh, yeah. What do you think the role of practices to, I mean, is there any point in practicing them? Well, yes and no, you see. I, it, you, so I think it's a paradox, uh, practice. Uh, on the one hand, yes, you, you've got to put all your energy into it and practice and practice. So, you know, uh, you, you remember to do it and be it and it, in, every, in every moment. And you might, I, one of the things that Douglas Harding said to me, he said, Richard, if you want to get this going, do things that remind you of it. Well, of course, that's what he did. He spent his whole life writing, talking about it. So it was always on the front burner for him uh, in that uh, way. And hang out with others who are aware of it. You know, take action to put it on the front burner, to bring it into your life. You do something about it, you see. <laughs> on the other hand, at the other end of the, the spectrum is... You can only do it now, and uh, you can't improve it. Uh, you can't stretch it out. There's nothing to practice. Uh, there's nothing to do. You are already it. And uh, it is a paradox. And uh, you enjoy both. Uh, you know, you're, you're home and dry. You're, you're, you're sitting by the fire with your feet up. You're completely comfortable. You, you are who you are. There's nothing to do. At the same time, you're out on the ocean with the wind blowing in your face on an adventure somewhere. <laughs> you know, you're doing something, going somewhere, discovering something. And to, to find out who you are is to the end of the search, but it is, uh, but the search for something doesn't stop. The search for meaning, the search for adventure. That to me, the idea that if you see who you are, you, you know, that's the end of adventure, I'd say, well, that's faint-hearted. <laughs> you know, who doesn't want an adventure? The one wants an adventure. It's all an adventure. And this podcast is part of the adventure. This is the one meeting the one uh, through Richard and Andres, you see, talking about itself in the great space, you know, not knowing what we're going to say, really. <laughs> you mentioned many times figuring out who we really are. Um, that reminded me, I was reading the other day some work by Douglas Harding about, uh, about the question, who am I? I'm wondering what's your experience with that question, how you use it, if you are still using it. Yeah, uh, what's the importance of it? Well, I use it sometimes. I don't have it as a regular question. Um, I think I've been through all kinds of phases in my life and, and maybe... Uh, at one point, I did use it. I used to read a lot of Rana Maharshi at one point, you know, and uh, read Maitre Eckhart. I used to read the mystics. I I don't do that much these days, uh, but it, it's not a rejection of them. It's just a different phase. And uh, I, I am uh, asking different questions, I suppose, or asking my own questions. Uh, I, I Or not asking questions at all. I... What I find interesting these days is the social aspect of being aware of who you really are. So I'll put this in a developmental context for you and your listeners and viewers, that uh, there are four main stages of our lives, the baby, the child, the adult, and then the seer. 
seeing who you really are. And the baby's headless, space for the world, pre-verbal, see, just space. You look at the bird flying across the sky, it's, you don't, it's not you looking, it's just the bird flying across the sky. You're empty for it. You, you haven't yet got there and here, you know, and me and you. Now, from day one, everyone around you starts reflecting back what you look like at a distance. Because what you are at two meters is different from what you are at zero meters. At two meters, I'm a person. Much closer, I'm a patch of skin. Much closer, I'm a cell, then a molecule, then an atom. If you almost nothing, go away, and I'm a, a, a country, a, a planet, a star, a galaxy. So, I'm like an onion, you're like an onion, in that you've got layers. And what you are depends on the range of the observer. This is the scientific context. And you need every one of these layers in order to sit here and breathe. So, excuse me, I don't just need my lungs, I need the cells that make up my lungs and the molecules that make up my cells. And then I need my atmosphere and my sunlight and indeed the galaxy, everything. So it is one living system. And what the headless way is doing is saying, well, okay, I admit I am Richard at that range, but I'm a planet at another range. But what am I at zero distance? And the experiments direct my attention to what I am at zero distance, which is this aware space full of a view out, you see. So that makes sense of it. When you're a baby, you just, you're not yet aware of what you look like at two meters or at any distance, you're just space. But as soon as you, um, you know, after day one, I saw a friend of mine, uh, we're on a Zoom meeting, and this friend, her sister, just had a baby, and the baby was two years old, and she shared a video on the Zoom meeting of the baby at two years old, and there it is, and, and it's got its eyes, and then it opens its eyes, but the mum is saying, oh, you know, nice, you know, little baby or whatever, open your eyes, oh look, you've opened your eyes. Right from day two, mum is telling the baby what it looks like, of course, you see. So, you might imagine that when you're an infant, you say to your friend, you say, you know this idea of becoming aware of what you look like? In other words, you know, you look in the mirror and mum and dad say, that's you. And you go, no, it's not. <laughs> that's over there, and that's tiny, and I'm here, and I'm big, you see. And, but they say, no, you've got to understand that, that when we look at you, that we see your face on your shoulders. I'm elaborating, you know. And you've got to get the idea you're behind a face. Otherwise, you won't be able to understand why people are talking to you, you know, why they're interacting, looking at you. You won't understand what they're looking at. You, you need to become aware of your face. So, you turn to your infant friend and you say, you know this idea about becoming aware you're behind a face, I just can't do it. I, I remember it for about a second, and then I forget, you see, and your friend says, yeah, no, I'm like that, I'll never do it. But uh, you do do it uh, because 24-7, everyone around you is telling you that and reflecting back to you what you look like and telling you that you are the one in the mirror. And uh, so by the time you're an adult, you are no longer conscious of this open space. You are acting 24-7 as if you're behind a face, face-to-face -face with others, that you are your appearance, that you're small, separate, mortal, all of that. 
And what growing up is about is discovering what you look like at three meters and learning to act as if that is what you are at zero meters, as if you're behind that face. Now, that you could say is stabilizing your human identity, integrating and stabilizing your uh, sense of yourself as a person. Now, when you're uh, a bit later in life, someone shows you your true nature, that you're they, like Douglas Harding, he said, have a look there. Do you see your face there? And I went, no. Oh, of course, there isn't a face here. I, I, that's what everyone else tells me. I'm just built open. But then you say, but how can I stabilize this? How can I be aware of this 24-7? And you say that to your friend. You say, you say I, I, I can see my true nature for about a second, but I just can't keep it going. And your friend says, yeah, I know, I'm like that. Well, that's... It's familiar, isn't it? Because what did you do to stabilize your human identity? It was hang out with others who were telling you all the time that you were human. And the only way of surviving was to use that currency, right? Okay, got that. So how? what is a good way of stabilizing now your awareness of your true identity? Hang out with others. It's a social thing who are aware of their true nature. Now, this does not mean that you forget your human nature. Say, I'm talking to you and I'm still aware of being Richard and you're Andres, but at the same time, we're also aware of the one consciousness in which this conversation is happening. And that is, we can talk about it because we're experiencing it. So it's kind of on the front burner or on the middle burner, we can bring it forward. And that's how you, quote unquote, I would say, that's a very skillful way easy way, pleasurable way of so-called stabilizing your true identity is, uh, you know, hang out with others. Uh, and uh, I, you see, when I met Douglas, that was, he said, do things that remind you of your true nature. But all, what he also said was hang out with others who are enjoying it. So I, I all my life, I since then, I have hung out with others who are enjoying their true nature. So it's kind of and it was normal. So in that society around Douglas, it was normal to be headless. <laughs> it was normal to see who you were, who you really were. And there was no sense of there being a hierarchy at that level because you got, you know, if you claimed you'd got something that someone else didn't have, everyone would have laughed at you because it would be ridiculous. It's just the same as if when you're a child, an infant, if you said you're headless, people would laugh at you. You'd soon stop doing that, right? It's the same mechanism when you're much later and you say, oh, I can see this headless space more than you and everyone laughs at you. And you, you think, oh, actually, not only is it kind of embarrassing, you know, it's, to say that, it's wrong. You know, it's just plain wrong. And uh, so I uh, am really interested in sharing the headless way, which means communicating about it, because everyone's got it. It's not sharing the experience. I mean, it is initially, but once you've got it, you've got it. But it's sharing the understanding and sharing the ideas and sharing the, the perspective you have, your unique uh, perspective from the space, which enriches other people's perspective. And that is the 
development and evolution of a new consciousness. The new consciousness isn't the space. I mean, that, that is the same. But the new consciousness is the, comes in language and in uh, understanding through language uh, of, uh, and in terms of the headless way in this, in this particular form. You know, I'm face to no face with you. I'm still in the world moves through me. I'm looking out of a single eye. Close my eyes, I have no boundaries. Uh, Two-way pointing, looking out, looking in, all of that. That's the evolution. That's where the evolution comes. And one more thing is that when you're growing up and you stabilize your human identity, and this has happened, this happens with you individually, but it happens to the species. Probably you could you could surmise that the reason why becoming self-conscious took off from the pre-self-conscious, you know, prehistory really, the reason why it took off was that it worked better. Because if you were aware of your appearance, clearly you could, uh, you had an advantage over others. You could plan, you could locate yourself more easily in space and time, you could differentiate yourself from others and all of that. So it took off. Partly, you know, it was true from a certain point of view, but it worked better. And when you see who you are and see your space at center, as well as recognizing still your human self, this awareness of your true nature works better than not being aware of it. So that is one hopeful reason why it will continue to uh, spread in the world, because it actually works better when you to see your face to no face with someone than to confront them. Uh, it were it's more relaxing to see you're still when the and the scene is moving through you than trying to get somewhere. Uh, it is very relaxing to to lie in bed with your eyes closed and be boundless. All of this uh, and a thousand other ways in which it actually works better to be aware of your true nature than to be overlooking it. Yeah, so you you mentioned a couple of times the importance of, well, not in, not the importance, but let's say applications of Headless Way in daily life, how, let's say, it's a more freeing experience to live from that point versus from a more self-centered point of view. Uh, I wonder if there are any other functions or applications of the Headless Way or Something I'm thinking about now, for example, is just to make a comparison in Buddhism or other traditions of Sufism, for example, let's say the manifestation of the journey is love and compassion or something around those words, those concepts. Uh, what would you say it's the ultimate manifestation in living through a through no head? I think that there are countless applications. Any direction you go in, I, I think you could, uh, I'm sure, you could show how it works better to be aware of your true nature. Um, I think the thing about love is, uh, uh, my view of this is that uh, your true nature, on the one hand, uh, the space you're looking out of, is neutral. It has no qualities. It's empty. It, it has no preferences. It's just empty. So you could say, in a certain sense, it's just neutral. 
And and there's a greater, you know, I suppose there's a disadvantage to that because people might might say, well, that's not very interesting. I'm not interested in that. But the advantage, one of the advantages of it is that, well, you don't have to hy hype yourself up to get it. It's just neutral. It's just there all the time. It's like the ground. It's underneath you. It's always there. Very plain, but uh, reliable. So that is a great advantage. But this neutral space is not just empty. It's empty for filling. That's full now for me of the screen and beyond that trees and clouds and houses and all of that. It is it is built open for the world. And uh, I would say that it is unconditionally open to the world. It doesn't say, well, I'm going to have that tree, but not that one. It just has no preferences. It welcomes, unconditionally welcomes the world. Now, this is very positive. This is supremely positive. That your true nature says no to nothing. It says it's got invisible arms around the whole thing. It welcomes everything. And I would say this has got something to do with love. And I'm not talking about falling in love or the love that comes and goes. I'm talking about something deeper in a way than the feeling of love. This fact of being open for, empty for, welcoming, embracing everything, including the things you don't like. <laughs> now, one of the things that, so that's a, a kind of basic love, the love of God, if you want to put it in, in those kinds of terms, love of your true nature, your Buddha nature. Now, in terms of uh, compassion, I think probably um, compassion starts at home with being compassionate towards yourself. I, I often hear it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a Western thing. I don't know. But oh, I think the, the hardest person I find I'm, you know, to forgive is myself. You know, the, the hardest person to be, feel compassionate towards is myself. So uh, when I look at myself on the screen or in the mirror or I entertain the idea of myself, notice that the space is unconditionally open for myself, including all the things I think I've done wrong and the judgments I make my, on myself. I'm not, I, I can't get rid of those just like that. There, there they are. But I see. So Richard is not unconditionally compassionate. But my, the space is. The space just, whether I like myself or not, the space welcomes. Uh, it's a humbling thing. Because you're not making yourself right. You're just, you're just seeing that your true nature is better than you. It just says yes to you. Now, you look at someone else or you, someone else that you might find difficult to be with. And, you, and uh, you might still find them difficult to be with. And you might not, you know, you might have to say, no, stay there. You can't come any closer. I'm sorry. You, you can't come in my house or whatever it is. But at the same time, you see the space is open for them. And it's one space, and it's theirs as much as it is yours. And it welcomes them. So it is not an easy thing, because you realize that even someone that you don't like, you are space for. And it means that you, you cannot, in the last resort, wash your hands of them. 
Now, you might, it, it's not saying you've just got to let them walk over you at all. Growing up is learning your boundaries as an individual. And when you see who you are, you don't drop that. You, you keep both going together. So there's a, there's a way of thinking. That's just my way of thinking about love, unconditional love, compassion, uh, that uh, only your true nature is, is absolutely compassionate and loving. Uh, Richard uh, puts conditions on things. I'll love you as long as you do this, you know. Uh, but, uh, and that's appropriate. But uh, to try and get Richard to be unconditionally open is, is just ridiculous. But look where you are and notice now, look for yourself. Are, are you not unconditionally open for whatever is happening? I am. That's a really beautiful and easy to understand way to put mm. the whole thing together, I think. Yeah, uh, I think very appropriate for, for, for people without much exposure to any practice before, you know, that's great. And what I can add to that is, uh, in terms of the headless way, look at someone, including yourself in the mirror, and notice it's face there to no face here. You're face to no face, or no face to face. We trade faces. You've got my face, I assume. I've got yours here. We exchange appearances. So face to no faces, you know, if you've got to somehow kind of produce loving compassion towards someone, okay, good luck, uh, great, uh, you know, good. But on the other hand, notice the setup that you actually face there to no face here and then see what happens. This is a very concrete, physical, accessible you know, you, you're standing in line at the, you know, in the shop and uh, you, you're just being space for the person at the till or space for the shop, you know, and uh, that is, that is so vivid and so personal in a way. It's so uh, not an abstract theory. It's there's the person and you, when you are face to no face with someone and attending to that, I think you'll find you really look at them. I mean, you're not in, in, in an intrusive way, but you, you are space for them. You receive them just as they are, you know? That, that's, um, that is interesting. <laughs> that's not a boring old spiritual practice. No, it's, it's very interesting. It's almost counterintuitive to the notion of, oh, yeah, I have to be loving and, compassion and compassionate. I have to be a good person. As you said, like forcing those things in Andres may come up or not sometimes, but when you just experience this or live life through these lenses of no self or no head, headless, as you talk about it, it just comes naturally. There's yeah. not much forcing to do to be loving and compassionate, right? Yes, and, and I... I think the rules of the road are important, you know, the, the uh, learning to be kind and to be polite and all of that. Uh, uh, I think the, the rules, uh, the traditions go along with the spontaneous experience. So, you know, on the one hand, you're driving and you obey the rules of the road. You don't go over the speed limit. You stop at stop signs, you know, all of that. Otherwise, there'll be chaos. You can't just say, well, I'm free. I'm just going to do what I like. I'm going to drive at 200 miles an hour and not stop. That, that, that's ridiculous. 
But at the same time as you are obeying the rules of the road, sensible rules, privately your space for the scenery to flow through you. You're not in a box moving along the road. You're this, you know, so there you are. You understand you've got to be kind to people. You recognize their boundaries and your boundaries. There's the sort of social rules of the road, aren't they? But at the same time, you're with them, being them, being space for them. There's no separation. There's no dividing line between the space here and the face there. So you're, you, you've got both. The, the thing that sometimes people, you can see in kind of cult leaders, they say, I'm free, I can do anything. Well, there they've confused your, the freedom of your true nature and their human nature. You're human. <coughs> Excuse me. You can't do anything as your as a human. I mean, you can't, but you shouldn't. <laughs> you know. But as who you really are, uh, you're free. You just don't confuse the two, or you'll get in trouble. You know. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's very clear. Thanks, Richard. It seems that uh, the headless way uses a lot of your senses to point out to your true nature, like how you use your vision, for example, seems that is particularly crucial. Uh, I find that very similar to Zen, for example, which is a very yogic approach. Um, for example, one of the instructions of, let's say, Rinzai Zen uh, is to use sort of a peripheral vision throughout your day 24-7. That sort of seems similar. So, so it's the instructions are to relax, uh, relax your gaze and use this peripheral vision as you go through your day, unless you really need to use a focus vision for specific tasks. But I didn't, I didn't know Rinzai Zen did that. They must have got it from the headless way. Then. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> oh, well. come on, Rinzai Zen, give some, uh, you know, appreciation of the source there. But well, it's, yeah, it's, the yeah, headless it's... way is is very experiential and you know it's not just vision uh, i'm listening to the sounds now in the silence and uh, i'm feeling my body sensations in the absence of a body here and i close my eyes and there's a darkness just one consciousness with no boundary so uh, yeah the headless way appeals to your direct experience and uh, asks you to test the hypothesis that you're not what you look like or, you know, the hypothesis that you're still and the scenery moves through you or that the sounds, you know, when I'm speaking, for me, the sounds come out of nowhere. Uh, obviously, for you, they're coming out of my mouth, but at zero, they come out of nowhere. So it's all for testing with your senses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's... I just find it very interesting. I think it makes sense that so many different methods and traditions use similar things uh, because at the end of the day, it seems that everything is pointing out to the same place anyways. But, <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> they, they, you know that thing uh, uh, Jesus said, you know, what, uh, my eye is single and my whole body is filled with light with no place dark. So you, you, you say, well, you know, obviously he was talking about a single eye. He's saying, my eye is single. 
and my whole play, body is filled with light. There's no place dark. He, he was talking about his true nature. And then you say, but, you know, if he wasn't, he should have been. <laughs> and, of course, uh, the thing you can, I would say, you can be sure of as you can be sure of anything is that Jesus is looking out the same space as you and I are looking out of because how could it be different? You know, uh, I mean, you can only really be sure of your own experience, but... As soon as you accept that there are others, you know, I can't be sure that you're conscious, Andres, that you're a, a picture in my consciousness. But as soon as I accept that you are conscious, which I do, I, mu I must accept that you're looking out of this, a single eye there. I mean, how ridiculous to think you're, I don't know, some little thing inside a head looking out of two holes. You know, that's just not your experience. And I, I can ask that and you can confirm that, I suppose. But once you accept that you're looking out of space, uh, you, you, I say, you, you, you accept everyone is, and, and including Jesus and the Buddha. And the Buddha couldn't see the space more clearly than you're seeing it now. You know, it, it, it's just it, it's not it's not that you're advanced. It just uh, you can't do it any other way. So this is very egalitarian, and this is where we're one. This is where we're one really are one, undivided, yeah. So the listener or the viewer, I say to you now, you're looking at the same space as I am, and I celebrate our undivided uh, identity here. But I understand you've got your own unique experience and life flowing from this one space. How, how wonderful and mysterious is that, yeah. Yeah, it is. Would you mind, Richard, uh, sharing one of the experiments to point out listeners and myself that true nature? Yes. I will take you through a little guided meditation that I've sort of developed. All right. So, uh, first of all, obviously, notice you can't see your head. Instead, you see the world. So that's a nonverbal experience. But as you're looking out, uh, notice you're looking out of one boundless space. You're not looking out of two little holes in a head. You look, And you can bring your hands in front of you if you're watching and just hold them apart like this and then bring them back either side of your head and they disappear into this space, you see, and then emerge. So that visually, that's just bringing our attention to this single eye that I call single space. And a bit like you were saying with the peripheral vision, you see the whole field of view and it fades out all the way around. Now, here's the little guided meditation. So, when you look at two objects, uh, well, look at one object first in front of you and notice it's surrounded by other things. And any object you look at is surrounded by other things. And it might be the background of the wall or something, but all right, anything you look at is within an environment. Now look at the whole field of view. That's your peripheral soft eyes view. And you notice how it fades out. Is, it, is there anything around it? Is there anything above it or to the left? I say, no, it's just floating in nothing. You see, as it's given, it fades out into nothing all the way around. It's not inside something else. So that's the first thing. It's not inside anything. Second thing is you look at an object again and compare its size with another object. And it's either bigger or smaller than that or could be the same size, I suppose. So size is relative. You look at 
that object and yet another object, and it might be smaller now rather than bigger. So size is relative. You, it, you compare it. Now look at the whole field of view where it fades out and ask yourself, how big is the whole field of view? And I say, well, there is not a second on the right to compare it with. It's single. So I can't say how big it is. It's incomparable. So the field of view, what I'm looking at, I can't say how big it is because uh, I can't compare it with another. And I, it's not inside anything. And uh, the third thing is when you look at two objects, you can measure the distance between them, between one thing and another. Now look at the whole field of view and, and ask yourself, how far away is it? What distance is it? Well, anything you measure from is within the field of view. And you're looking out of a space that the whole field of view is just no distance. That's what I say. No distance at all. It's just right here in consciousness. All right. So now close your eyes and uh, listener or viewer, please close your eyes. Be aware of the darkness. How big is the darkness? Well, there is not a second to compare it with, so I cannot say. Is it inside something? Well, like the field of view, it just fades out into nothing. It's just hanging in consciousness. How far away is it? Well, from where, you see, it's just given right here in consciousness. Now you be aware of, of sounds, what I might call the field of sound, and my voice or other sounds, some loud, some soft, changing, you see. How big is the whole field of sound? Well, there is not a second to compare it with. See, I can hear a plane now, and uh, it's within the field of sound. It's not outside me, it's, it's given in this silence in which my voice is happening, you see, one consciousness. And uh, how far away are these sounds? You see, well, aren't they all given right where you are, as it were? I can't say how big the field of sound is because there isn't a second, it's not inside anything, it's not distant. See, and it's actually happening in the same space as the darkness is happening. And now go to your body sensations, but uh, as much as you can, put aside the image that you've learned and just attend to the sensations, which are a bit like a cloud of sensations, and ask yourself, how big is this field of sensation? Well, there is not a second to compare it with. It's single. And are these sensations inside anything? I'm, I'm not talking about the image you've learned. Aren't they just appearing like sounds in consciousness? Isn't the field of sensation single? You don't experience anyone else's. I don't, anyway. And, and how far away is it? Where is it? Isn't it right here in consciousness? And then you can uh, attend to the same things with your thoughts and feelings, your mind. You know, imagine a number, there's a thought. Or think of a mountain, see, there's an image. Now, where do these come from? They just come out of, like Zen says, mind comes out of no mind. 
and uh, think of a problem you've got. You know, it might be an ache or a pain or a problem at work or in a relationship or money. And be aware of the, you know, the disquiet anxiety you might feel. There's a feeling arising, see. So now I ask, this is a kind of field of mind, feelings and thoughts and images and memories. How big is the whole field of mind? Well, there is not a second to compare it with. Is it inside anything? In your head or in a box or I don't know? Or is it just in no mind arising in this empty consciousness, you see? So this is all a way of using your senses to ask the question, who am I? What am I? Are you contained? See, do you have a size? Are you inside anything? I'm not. Uh, how many consciousnesses do you actually experience? Now, you might remember Richard and Andres and your friends. So at that level, you say, well, there's lots of people. But right now, going by your experience, I go by my experience, this consciousness that I am has no boundary, has no name, has no age, no address, and I don't find a second. And I could say everything is within it, within me, you see. And I've come to this not by believing or remembering a scripture, but by attending to how big I am, to where I am. See? How available is that? You see, that's supremely available, accessible, simple. And there's no hierarchy. You can't get a bigger space, you know, or a more advanced space in which things are happening. Now, what you are experiencing, what thoughts and feelings are going to be different from mine? Good. But where they're coming from, where they disappear into, I say that there's no way of differentiating you know, the so-called your space from my space just undivisible, indivisible. And I celebrate that undivided, I celebrate that undivided space and I celebrate the differences that are arising within it. Very mysterious. So you're now going to do a magic trick, which is you've got darkness, boundless darkness, you see, and sounds and thoughts and feelings. And you're now going to I put it rather boldly, you're now going to create colors and shapes. Flood the space with colors and shapes. So open your eyes and look, just magic. Colors and shapes appearing in the space. Now, have you suddenly become small? I haven't. See, have you, have you suddenly found that there's another consciousness in your own experience? No, there's only one. See, uh, have you suddenly discovered that uh, uh, 
you know, you have an age. No, I don't. Or a, a nationality. No, I don't. I, I do as Richard. I understand that. But, uh, you know, if I close my eyes, I can imagine Richard and his age and his nationality. And I open my eyes and I see that. But here, nothing changes. And I understand that the same is true for you. Now, when the human race takes this on and recognizes and celebrates the fact that we are all this one consciousness, that's going to make a difference to the way we relate, we relate to each other. It's not going to create utopia, you know, but it's going to make a difference because it's true and it's highly practical and hugely significant. Yeah. What could be more significant in our relationships with each other both at the personal level and at the national level, the international level, to recognize than to recognize that we're coming from the same consciousness. It, 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 it is radical, and it's not a belief. It, you test it, it's true. But uh, the human race has been under the sway of convention that we are what we look like for a long time. And that is a great advantage over not being aware of our appearance. But we've come to a point now where our deep sense of separation um, is endangering life. Because not only do we, see, we feel separate, but we've got the weapons and the machines to destroy. And we have to come to our senses, directly to our senses, and wake up to who we really are. Uh, uh, before we, you know, a, a thousand years ago, we, we were, you know, might be well aware of our separation, you know, uh, or 2,000 years ago with the Romans, you know, uh, and we do horrible things, but we couldn't destroy life. But now we can. And so waking up to our true nature it, it, it is... Uh, uh, is going to help us uh, uh, recognize uh, a way of somehow uh, drawing back from the brink of destruction, really. So it's highly relevant in terms of climate change, in terms of, you see, the wars that we have now, as we all know, with Ukraine, they're not like wars in the past. The wars we have now are so potentially destructive. I mean, Mariupol, you know, obliterate a whole city just like that. That has not really happened before. Second World War, there was quite, we were getting that way. Uh, but now, uh, it, it, it is like they say, war in the 21st century is absurd. I mean, it's absurd because it's so completely dangerous. And I say that... Uh, uh, if when seeing who you really are is not just a kind of spiritual hobby, it is recognizing a truth about ourselves that has huge implications for the way we relate to each other. You know, even our, our sworn enemies are coming from the same place. And it, 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 you still say no, you, you might have to fight them. But you also realize that at the end of the day, it is one. And that recognition is so important, even with your enemies. Because we've got to live together. Yeah. <laughs> so there. <laughs> yeah, that was very powerful. Thank you, Richard.
Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, any advice? And if seeing who you really are does not have uh, relevance to today's problems like climate change and nuclear war, uh, you know, what good is it? Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Any advice that you would give to anybody trying to get more in touch with these two nature or who they are? Oh, well, you know, I say uh, go to our website. You'll find my email address there or through you guys. Uh, because if you want to hang out with others on the Zoom groups, which are free, you know, if you want to uh, get deeper into this in the sense of the headless way and sharing that or just hang out with others who are seeing who they are just to have that contagiousness, you know, infectiousness. Uh, you, I, that to me, that's the kind of easiest way to go about it. Just you know, kind of hang out with others. That that that's the kind of uh, you know the, the the pleasurable route. Um, but there is lots on the website. There's lots on the the uh, YouTube site, and uh, you know, listen to this podcast ten times. <laughs> awesome! I will make sure to share all your links, Richard. And thank you so much. This conversation has been great. Uh, well, yeah. a delight to see you again and to share our true nature, right? And yeah. uh, I've talked a lot, but I've just taken the opportunity to share my ideas. So I've rabbited on quite a lot, I know. But uh, <laughs> thank you for giving me the opportunity to share. And, uh, you know, that it is important for, for, for the human race, isn't it? It, it, it? This is not just a kind of uh, little hobby. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it, it is deeply significant and important for us to get this truth around, which is what you're doing, get this truth around about our true nature, whatever way you come to it, whether it's a headless way or Buddhism or whatever, it doesn't, as long as you get mm -hmm. and live from your true nature, who cares what way you got in? I'm just sharing the way that works for me and for many people I know. But um, yeah, this is you know, great work, Anders. I know your heart is in it. I know this is what you're about. I know that you want this truth to get out, and you're doing your, you know, your part to uh, to make that happen in the world. And it is hugely relevant to our big problems we've got today. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much, Richard. Uh, I think you have a very inspiring journey and a lot of wisdom to share. So hopefully, we'll be able to chat a little bit more afterwards as well. Maybe. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Richard. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find the links mentioned today, please visit our website at inner-craft.com. Here, you will also find resources for in-depth and personalized meditation training, such as video courses and live events conducted by highly qualified teachers. If you enjoyed this episode, Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes and subscribing to the podcast. This helps spread the word and reaching more people who could benefit from this work. Thanks again and see you next time.